0: Hello and welcome to the Problem With Men podcast. One of the more common issues we hear about from men is in relation to the perceived injustice when it comes to divorce and especially when it comes to how it's decided and shared or co-parenting is determined. One issue that comes up time and time again in our inbox is that of parental alienation. So in this episode we'll hopefully be able to unpack what parental alienation is how it affects us, and what, if anything, we can do about it.
1: You're listening to the Problem With Men podcast.
0: To start, I think it's important we understand what we mean when we talk about parental alienation.
2: Um. Yeah, so parental alienation is a term that, um, you know, I, I would freely admit has quite a complicated and, and somewhat checkered history as well. Um, there's been quite a lot of uh, different and varying and, and uh, you know some methodologically rigorous and some less so research around this concept of parental alienation.
0: Ben Hine is a professor of applied psychology at the University of West London. He teaches and researches topics related to gender and forensic psychology.
2: But we are starting to kind of coalesce around uh, a kind of uh, collective agreement as to what it means. And essentially, it's, it's, a, it's a situation or, or some people describe it as a condition where a child will ally or align themselves strongly with a uh, preferred parent or, or an alien, what we call an alienating, pa- alienating parent um, and rejects a relationship with the alienated parent, but without any seeming justification. Um, and this is where I would make a point that I always make, which is that this is different to what we call estrangement, which is where children don't want a relationship with a parent for what we might see as more legitimate or valid reasons. So for example, if that parent is abusive or um, uh, you, you know is lacking contact from their side. So it's really about understanding the term is really about um identifying and understanding this behavior where the child is seemingly rejecting. An otherwise loving parent
0: so specifically when we're talking about parental alienation we're talking about situations where one parent is discouraging the child from wanting to see the other parent using alienating behaviors
2: so there are some people that argue there are more behaviors involved and less but um some of the common ones that that we see are things like bad mouthing a parent specifically in front of the child so um you know, uh, you know, calling them names or saying that they're, they're worthless or, or no good, um, limiting or interfering with contact, limiting or interfering with uh, mail or phone contact as opposed to, to in-person or physical contact, um, you know, interfering with information. So um, this is where we might see um, a, a parent stopping uh, a child's school report going to a parent, for example. Um, emotional manipulation so um, you know uh, making a child feel feeling guilty for wanting to see another parent um, forming an unhealthy alliance so um, kind of bringing a child onto your team as it were and also kind of miscellaneous behaviours like telling the targeted parent that the child doesn't love them um, and, and vice versa so again it's um, it's one of those things where uh, it depends on who you ask but generally those are the types of behaviours of course,
0: divorce and separation are often difficult and stressful times for anyone. And it's relatively easy to have some anger and resentment towards an ex-partner. But parental alienation seems to go beyond the general tensions that arise from a separation.
2: Um, I think the key with alienation is that it's about where it's directed. And in alienation and in the processes of, of alienation and alienating behaviours, it's that the parent is purposefully involving the child in that process or that they are targeting their partner or ex-partner um, and the person they've experienced this breakdown with through the kind of relationship that they have with with the child. Um, and I think that's the key because I, I feel that you can, you know, you can delineate those things um, if you choose to do so. You can be very angry at a spouse but be aware that they are fundamentally a good parent and kind of leave that relationship alone. And I think that's when we commonly see alienation occurring is in the context of family breakdown, a parent um, taking their dissatisfaction, taking their hurt and their anger, and actually targeting it at the parent-child relationship. And again, I think it's really important to stress that there are circumstances where that is probably appropriate in the sense that if you believe your partner, has been abusive or is abusive and may put the child at risk, then there are protective elements to those types of behaviours. You may want to limit contact for that reason, and I would never um, stand up and say that that's not the case or that I wouldn't want that as well. Um, What we're talking about here is when that process occurs, when there is no kind of previous legitimate justification for doing so. But, you know, all of these things are are grey areas, so it is a tricky thing to kind of pin down and and explore. But that's, that's what we're really looking at here, is when that anger or when that discord spills over into targeting that relationship.
0: So parental alienation goes beyond tensions following a breakup and can be seen as more of a form of abuse directed towards the alienated parent. At
2: the moment, this is a kind of big topic of conversation within our circles around, okay, how do we situate these types of behaviors within the existing literature? Um, Because whenever I have spoken to, uh, and most of my work is is with fathers, but when I've spoken to to mothers as well, um, who are experiencing parentally alienating behaviors, a lot of them situate those within the narrative of a broader pattern of abuse and when you ask them about those behaviours, they describe them, you know, as abusive and they describe them as a form of coercive control or emotional abuse. So actually, you know, if we're led by the people who are living this, then I think they do have absolutely a, a relationship um, and that a lot of uh, people who are affected would describe it as simply another avenue. Um, and in, in this area, we often talk about a kind of, you know, a suite of tactics that a perpetrator will have available to them in order to coercively control their partner. And actually, when you think about it, it seems perfectly logical that a perpetrator could use the child as a, as one of those avenues. Um, because arguably, It's the relationship that probably matters most to people. So if you are someone who truly desires and wishes to hurt someone else, and this is how I begin some of my talks, you know, I I say if someone wanted to hurt me um, as a father myself, the best way they could do that is to target my relationship with my children, prevent me from seeing them, manipulate their opinion of me. So if someone was looking to be abusive towards me, that's how they would do it probably most successfully. So there absolutely exists a relationship between parental alienation and intimate partner violence, um, for sure. And I think one of the the key challenges in this area or key debates moving forward is, you know, is parental alienation the right term to use? Should we be elevating it and uh, singling it out? As a as a specific form of violence, or should we be talking about it um, just as another form of coercive control? And there are merits and, and and demerits to each of those arguments, and we're just kind of figuring that out. But absolutely, there is a relationship there.
0: One person who's been on the receiving end of parental alienation is Bob, who asked us to change his name for this episode.
3: I was I was married for just over a decade um, to uh, so you know, my my ex wife. Uh, And it started, uh, I suppose, like many other relationships start, uh, it was, uh, you know, meeting, I suppose, sort of through friends and and things developed uh, from there. Um, I mean, I think with some hindsight and looking back on on the relationship, there were some things which uh, probably were were quite um, negative signs early on, but I, I... didn't see them, didn't recognise them, and I, I think if someone had pointed them out to me, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have acknowledged it really. I wouldn't have recognised it as a, an issue.
0: Bob and his wife were married for a few years before he found out he was going to be a dad.
3: I think, uh, in equal measure, incredibly exciting and absolutely terrifying. <laughs> um, but, but overall, no, I was extremely, I was extremely pleased. Um, you know I think yeah, a, a range of different emotions. there were some nerves there, I think inevitably and but but generally, I was very excited and extremely happy um, to to be a dad.
0: From the time his daughter was born, his wife started to behave
3: in a very concerning way. Um, I think it was it was after my daughter was was born um, there were certain traits that I, I think were there in in, in my ex-wife. Which seemed to become more exaggerated. Um, my, uh, my 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 she, she really kind of she completely switched her her attention entirely over. In fact, she said to me on one very memorable occasion, "My uh, my job is entirely to look after our, our daughter, um, and, and, and basically, you do everything else." Um, and I started to have very, very, it, it, over time, creeping, very, it started to creep in very little connection. I was very allowed very little connection, emotional or otherwise, with, with my, my daughter. Uh, and that started to creep into other aspects of, of my family as well being excluded not just by, by ex-wife, but by her family as, as well. So there were certain behaviours that became very apparent and that caused some, some tensions, some very severe tensions, I think, for me. Um, I, I don't think it was quite sort of between us, but it was was for me in that situation. So I think some of the, the problematic behaviours that have occurred uh, after divorce were, were evident and were present beforehand. Things were going in a particular direction. And I think I would have been largely excluded, uh, regardless of the, the what happened afterwards. So, I mean, obviously, if we'd still been together, it would have been a very different dynamic, but the behaviours were there. And it got worse and worse as my, my, my daughter started to get older. Um, but I, I was being excluded from things like choice of school. There was no... Um, desire to um to no uh, willingness from my ex-wife to engage in any kind of discussion around things like that she just made the decision and did it and and the idea was i i would i would have to to live with it there was no sense of of, of discussion and collaboration and and cooperation what what she said went uh, entirely
0: after bob discovered his wife was being unfaithful it seemed the marriage was unable to be saved
3: i wanted her to have a you know, a happy, stable family life. Um, but, uh, but it, it, yeah, obviously that wasn't going to happen. And because I knew what had ha- happened, I was sort of quite uh, accepting of the, of the, the divorce. Um, so it wasn't a pleasant process by any stretch, and it's not something I wanted, but there was a sort of an, an awful inevitability about it. And it wasn't just from finding that out, it was from things that had happened um, before uh, as well that it seemed inevitable so it was me who uh, it was me who actually filed for for divorce um, knowing that something was going on i'd i'd taken the advice of a solicitor so I, I just wanted to sort of know what the legal position was should should something happen
0: from the outset bob's ex-wife wanted to dictate what would happen in terms of shared parenting
3: very there was a, a particular conversation we had very close to me discovering what had happened and I'd obviously seen seen the solicitor and was gonna file for divorce. And I my position was and I remember talking to, to, to my ex wife, sat in the garden about this and said to her, Well, obviously we'll need to divide the assets because there'll need to be two homes for for my daughter and or our daughter, sorry. And and she said, Well no, I'll stay in the house. You'll have to pay the mortgage and the bills and um, until until she's twenty, uh, and uh, you'll have to give me lots of money because I'll need lots of, of money. And I said, "But that's not that's not right. You know, she needs a stable home with both of us. But that that was not in the thinking from day one." She said, "You know, y- you'll get to see her uh, on on Saturdays, and maybe you can come and visit her after school one evening." That that was the attitude from from the start. Anecdotally, it seems
0: as though this is a similar arrangement that would be set up through the courts. Mothers have traditionally tended to do the bulk of the parenting, with dads often reduced to seeing their children on weekends. But is this actually what happens? Laura Nacer is a family law partner at Pennington's Manches Cooper and author of The Family Lawyer's Guide to Separation and Divorce.
1: Well, as far as children are concerned when a couple breaks up... There is no formal process apart from communication. So whether you're married or whether you're unmarried cohabitees, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. The only importance I would say is um, for a father in particular is making sure that they have what's called parental responsibility for those children, and they can get that in, in a variety of ways. The most common being that they were married to the mother at the time of the birth, or being named on the child's birth certificate as their father. If they're not, um, if either of those don't apply, then there are other ways of obtaining parental responsibility. But that is really key to having, doesn't, doesn't translate to legal rights about the child, but it it means that as parents, you are then obliged to consult with each other about all the children's big life decisions. Thereafter, it's just a matter of saying, look, how are we going to do this? What works best for our family now that we're going to be separating and really sitting down together trying to be amicable which isn't always that easy focusing on what the courts would refer to as the best interests of the children and in their specific circumstances kind of you just need a calendar in front of you and saying right Who does what? How can we make this work? What can we do that will interrupt the children the least, keep them stable and allow them to continue to have a great relationship with both parents? Um, And there's no formality. You know, if two parents agree, the court's. Have um, a presumption of what they call the no order principle. So there is a presumption that there is no need for a court order to be put in place and the courts don't want to get involved when it comes to arrangements for children when um parents separate they just have an assumption that as parents you know what's best for your children and whatever you agree will therefore be best for them it's only if there is a dispute between parents on what is best so where one parent says for example I think the children should be with me this much of the time and with you that much of the time. And the other parent says, no, 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 that is not appropriate for these reasons. I propose an alternative and they really can't come together and compromise and reach agreement. Um, In that scenario, in, in the conflict scenario, the process would be my view Immediately take legal advice.
0: Of course, it makes sense that as parents you would have the best idea of what will work for your family post separation. And if you can agree arrangements, it's obviously going to be the best situation for all. But of course, breakups are never easy, and agreeing arrangements can be quite tricky. One thing that men predominantly fear is that their role as a parent will be considerably diminished by the courts.
1: We still had a large setup, um, you know, a large proportion of our population with that stereotypical traditional family setup one working parent, one predominantly stay at home, part time parent, part time worker. And that does then have that um, stereotype to it because it, traditionally that is the female who is the primary carer because various reasons. I mean, you can get super political over it, can't you, with the gender pay gap and all of that. But that that was really what was leading that um, presumption that it was the mother was the favour. But um, now that people are able to work flexibly and work from home far more, I have seen a massive change in my children's cases in particular, where I can confidently say to my male clients, again, being very stereotypical, they were the ones that, you know, would be the, the full time workers um, typically. And I can say to them with confidence now, look, if you can work flexibly and more from home, so you're not getting up and commuting, for example, before the kids have left for school, and you're able to be at the school gates for pickup, and you can do that and manage your working hours, then why can't we say, let's share the care of the children equally? Um, that's been a huge sea change, I would say, in the last few years. Um, and that has really been why there was that presumption in the favour of a mother because stereotypically, the mother was the one who didn't work full time. But I don't think it is a true, um, it's not a principle in our law. um, And it's certainly not something that if any case goes to court, that there is a presumption that that's the right outcome whatsoever. I've never experienced a case where I'm fighting against a... um, A judge who has assumed that. I've never experienced it.
0: So the court's main focus is looking out for the best interest of the child and essentially trying to find compromise between two disagreeing parents.
1: If you end up in the court arena, I mean, I I think every family lawyer would say to their clients, you're never going to walk away from court feeling like you have won in a family court scenario. You're going to walk away feeling like hopefully your best case scenario i can live with that that'll do you're never going to feel like you've had a triumph really so um there's always going to be someone who who can say something negative you know whether you've come out with an all right judgement or whether you feel like you've really had it go against you there's no real kind of, it's not like you see it in like the movies where someone comes out high-fiving their lawyer because they've just had a massive slam dunk in court. You know, our family courts just aren't, aren't built like that.
0: That seems fair overall. When Bob
3: went to court with his ex, she tried to argue against Bob having contact. And I remember one of the court hearings that we went to, one of the earliest ones, the position that was put to the judge was that for my daughter to spend any length of time with me was too much too soon and I tried to make the argument that it wasn't too much too soon. We'd been in this situation for months now of this new relationship, and what what was wrong was severing that, but the the judge didn't uh, didn't listen to that uh, he, he, he The judge did order though um overnight contact at that point. And I went to meet my ex-wife and my daughter in the the town centre where we, we both live. And uh, my daughter said to me, oh, I was told she has something to say to you. And I s- said, OK, you know, darling, what, what is it? And my daughter said, Daddy, I don't want to stay with you for four nights. Four nights is too much too soon. And it was one of the first instances where my daughter was repeating words that had been used in a courtroom. Despite the court deciding that Bob should have contact with his daughter over four nights, after one four-night stay, things changed. She stayed with me for four nights, as was the court order, and um, I'd, I said to her before her mo- mother was going to pick her up, I said, do you know how long you've stayed? And she said, no, I said, you've stayed for four nights. That was great, wasn't it? It was really easy. And she was cheering, and going, yay. Uh, a mother picked her up and took her to, took her from the door, didn't say a word to me because she did, does, doesn't speak to me really. Picked her up and carried her off down the street, carried her. And for some reason, as they went round the corner, I could see my daughter burst into tears. And then I didn't, that was 2012, and I didn't spend any time with her again until 2016. Any substantial time. Uh, I was, uh, from that point on, again, obviously I took it back to to court to try and get this changed. My, My daughter would refuse to see me. I would see her with her mother for 10 minutes, in all weathers, sat in the town centre on a bench. I'd take her a toy or something. We'd try and sort of whisper um, some, you know, discussion between us. My ex-wife would sit there in dead silence, holding onto my daughter's hand, staring in the opposite direction. She wouldn't say a word to me. She, she, She always said it was my daughter who didn't want to see me. She's always said that. It's not her, it's not my fault. The refrain we've had is, I'm doing everything I can. But there is no visible sign of that. And and that statement has been made to, and I I use the word carefully, experts, um, who have bought it, uh, but there's no physical evidence that she's she's actually doing anything. On the advice of a, a barrister I was using, I started to use because obviously it was getting more complex, he said, quite rightly, you've got to make sure that you maintain contact with um, your daughter. So I started seeing her at a contact centre. Um, there was no safeguarding issues. There's never been a safeguarding issue raised. Uh, nothing, nothing at all been deemed to be problematic. Uh, and yet I saw her in a contact centre for about a year. I was the only person in the contact centre some of whom were there for issues of safeguarding. I was the only person where the other party was still in the room. Most of the time, my ex-wife refused to leave the room. And when she was asked to, she would stay in the building. So there'd been physical interruptions consistently right the way through. Um, I would then see my daughter in a cafe around the corner from where I live with my ex-wife there. I gave her Christmas presents and birthday presents in cafes. It's, it, it's, it's impossible um, to have any meaningful relationship. All I was aiming for and all I was hoping that I could do was to demonstrate to her that I was still there and I, I still loved her and I was still interested in her and I, you know... When, when she was ill, when I found out she was ill, because of course I was getting virtually no communication, I'd send her a card or I'd send her flowers or, or something like that. So she knew I was there. I also uh, volunteered at, at, at the school she was at to help with lessons. So again, it was that demonstration. She could see I was there and I was interested in, in her and in her life.
0: So while the courts decided on a co parenting schedule, Bob's ex-wife found a kind of loophole by discouraging their daughter from wanting to see him. This kind of manipulation can be relatively easy to achieve, as Ben Hine explains.
2: Um, And the best way I I kind of try and explain this is around how children think. So my background is in developmental psychology and in child development. And, um, you know, children... um, particularly um, in the earlier years um, in in childhood proper, so, you know, before kind of 12 years old, are very focused on building up a kind of fundamental picture of how the world operates, um, because, you know, human infants particularly are born in a state where they have to do an incredible amount of processing and learning about how things work and how themselves work compared to many other mammals. And a huge part of that, and this is what was argued by you know, pioneering attachment psychologists such as John Bowlby is around learning what security looks like in your environment. So, um, you know, we have a lot of pre-programmed behaviours that are specifically uh, there to try and get proximity to caregivers, to bring them towards us. And then slowly over time, we start to build up a mental idea or a cognitive idea around what that looks like. Now, if you follow this through and you make the argument that if you have, and, and there are various different family uh, dynamics that exist, of course, but if you have, for example, a mother and a father raising a child in a setting um, and forming attachments with that child, they, they will formulate a key part or you know, the majority part of what that child views as the safety of their environment. These two people will keep me safe. Now, if you remove or destabilise one of those attachment figures, particularly without justification. So if that person has done nothing to, you know, um, legitimise that action, especially in relation to the child, then you're kind of fundamentally destabilising a child's understanding of the world around them and, and who keeps them safe and that and that can be extremely damaging especially if it occurs early on but even in particularly sensitive times like adolescence for example it can still be hugely hugely damaging and it is like the same level of damage that you would have through losing a parent through for example full loss um through death
3: and of course the trauma isn't limited to the child bob again the, the other thing that's important is, well, when I moved house and I was very fortunate to receive support from my parents to be able to buy another house quickly. So I'd set it up for my daughter. So she had a room, she's always had a room and still has a room uh, at, my, at my house to her specification. So she knew that was there. She knew I'd, I'd, I'd done those things for her, but it, 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 it's, it, it was awful. It was absolutely awful. I made I made a promise to her, not physically to her, but sort of to her out to the, the ether that I would I would always be there for her and I'd always do everything I possibly could to to to, to, to see her, to demonstrate that I, I was there for her and that I loved her and I wasn't abandoning her and I wanted to support her. So, you know, I, I went to everything I could that I knew about um to to to, to um, to, to, at school and things like that to show her. And quite often I'd arrive there on my own and my ex-wife would be there with her new partner, her, her mother, my ex-mother-in-law, other members of her family, all of whom would ignore me. So my daughter could see that behaviour, The dad was someone you ignored, dad was someone you didn't talk to, dad was someone who wasn't involved. Um, and then other things started to creep in as well, which were devastating. I mean, it's almost textbook. You know, things like um, name changes being accepted, um, referring to um, uh, uh, my ex-wife's new partner as daddy. All these things were going on and I was aware of them. Uh, it's, It's it's, distressing. it's really distressing. And I, I did what I think quite a lot, I've got the impression quite a lot of people do in my situation, that I, I looked into it and I researched it. Um, I had the time to do it, you know, and the interest in, in researching what was going on, uh, which is when I encountered the, the concept of, of alienation, I knew nothing of it before, um, and started to read around it. And that's when I found that these, these I mean, as I say, it, it is absolutely absolutely textbook uh, behaviours. I think if it's, and my experience was that it was so severe and so pronounced that um, the only thing I could do was to go back through, through court. Uh, there, was, there was nothing I could do, I, I, I was helpless. The devastating effect on my daughter is paramount in all of these things. But the effect on me in those situations is one of huge frustration. You can see these things happening, but you can't do anything about it. Somebody I know who's in a similar situation, or has been in a similar situation, someone I know quite closely, described it as, it, it's like you're, there's a house, your kids are trapped in a house that's on fire, and you can see they're in danger, really severe danger, and someone's stopping you from going in and helping them.
1: If you're enjoying this podcast, support our work by leaving a rating or review on your favourite podcast app. The Problem With Men podcast.
0: Laura Naser suggests that time is of the essence when dealing with alienation, though it's something that can be quite tricky to gather evidence around.
1: The redress would be to make an application to the court. And again, time is of the essence with alienation cases, because... You know, the longer it goes on for, the harder it will be to redress it. And it will be about getting experts involved to assess, to have a finding of alienation made and to then get the appropriate experts involved in that family to then try and make changes to that child's psychology In extreme cases, it is possible for a judge to alter the child's um, primary home from one parent to the other, from the alienator to the other parent. Um, So there is a lot that can be done, but it's all bespoke, you know, down to that specific circumstances of that family, of that child and what's gone on. And it's not overnight. It's not easy, but time definitely is of the essence. From a legal perspective, the threshold is high, and it is. We were talking previously about, you know, the finding of fact. So when there's an allegation of harm, parental alienation is a harm. It's a psychological. It's an emotional harm that you are alleging is being done to your child, and so you have to prov- you have to prove it. You have to evidence whether that's your own evidence, whether that's through witness evidence, whether that's through expert evidence, you get a psychologist involved. Um, And so the threshold is high. The balance of probabilities test. Do we think more likely than not that this has happened, whether it's conscious or subconsciously being done by that parent? And if so, if that finding is made, what impact does that have on the arrangements for this child? What can we do to rectify it? And it is difficult.
0: So Bob went back to court and arranged an expert witness to assess the
3: situation. But we we took it back to court and we asked for uh, an expert to be appointed uh, by, by the judge. Uh, and we were fortunate that expert was appointed. They was someone who does have a a specialism in alienation. Obviously, my ex-wife's side tried to have have them thrown out. It took a subsequent 18 months of some supervised contact from this expert for a whole catalogue of reasons for the report to come through. The report was extremely damning of my ex-wife and laid out a series of consequences for my daughter that would would, uh, happen if things weren't addressed. It did moot in that, that if things weren't sorted out, the recommended course of action would be a transfer of residence. And that w- report was delivered to court. And from being told that my daughter couldn't see me, wouldn't see me, didn't want to see me, couldn't cope with it, um, that uh, she, she, I was told she could come and stay with me. And it was overnight. It was just click. Everything had changed. And it was the. Th- I think it's my belief. Uh, it seems absolutely clear that it was the threat of, of a transfer of residence. And my ex-wife was told, if you don't sort this out now, it will be a transfer of residence. My ex-wife does and still has the power to click her fingers, and my daughter will change what she does. The legal arrangement is that I still have a court order where we have it, it shared access, uh, shared parental responsibility that my daughter is ordered to stay with me for uh, a number of days in the week. What happened was uh, I had three in a bit, very, very good years with my daughter. Um, she reconnected with her grandparents, reconnected with her, her uncles, reconnected with, with everybody and... Uh, became part of the family with my, my new wife and her son my stepson despite
0: the court order and the new
3: relationship bob had with his daughter things were short-lived what was happening during that period was my ex-wife had given uh, my daughter a mobile phone and was texting her constantly There were thousands and thousands and thousands of texts. And also when we were going to go away on holiday, uh, she would send countdown timers and things like that. You know, when you've ticked off all these boxes, you'll be coming home with with us. There were other things that happened. We took her to uh, Spain in April. The whole family went to Spain in April. It was pretty chilly, to be honest, at that time. And uh, we came back and then about a week after that, My daughter went back to her mother. Uh, We then got messages that my daughter was screaming in agony with the sunburn she'd got. It was just impossible. Um, So there were all sorts of things like that going on. Every opportunity there was to disrupt the time I had with her was, was happening.
0: And of course, while this was a fairer outcome for Bob, it meant his daughter was caught between two disagreeing families, something which Ben Hine has experienced.
2: Well, this, this is what, um, you know, many children report is around being kind of stuck in in the middle. Um, and I think when you have parents who are kind of quite obviously and palpably in a situation of, of conflict, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for children to, to not feel like they're caught kind of in between two warring parties and, and then to feel that they have to kind of um, act in a way that that pleases or protects each parent, because children are are, are fe- they do tend to be fiercely loyal, um, and when they have had a loving relationship with both parents, uh, they feel deep conflict around um, you know when when they hear or when they're encouraged to reject one uh, parent over the other, um, you know it, it is it can be very kind of um, psychologically damaging um, and. I certainly felt, you know, that I, well, I certainly felt that an environment was constructed where I felt that I couldn't talk about my dad when I was, you know, with my mum's side of the family. Um, and just to stress, because my mum my was was ill, um, a lot of these behaviours involved my maternal grandparents as a, as a kind of team on one side and my father on the other. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely constructed in a way that I felt that I couldn't kind of talk about him. Which is very difficult when you you know when you're close to another lo- parent, um, and uh, yeah, you know when when my dad you know um, remarried, it, there was a lot always a lot of tension around my 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 stepmom who who I never called my stepmom I've always called her my mum, but you know calling her mum mentioning her at all really in that environment it was frowned upon and and kind of really actively discouraged. Um, and you know he was he was made out to be a, a my father was made out to be you know a really bad man um, you know there was also some like physical conflict between him and my my uh, uncle my my mother's brother um, which I witnessed so you know it it, it was a very palpably um, distressing environment um, which. Actually, probably could have been a lot worse because I think that people did try and take measures to protect me from it all.
0: Even when the alienating behaviours are subtle, they can still have a profound effect.
2: Yes, and actually, sometimes these more subtle um, behaviours exhibited over a long period of time can really place a kind of wedge in a relationship. Um, because you know, it was really important to my dad. He always wanted to try and get me into football, and we've never—that's never kind of really recovered. Um, you know, and, and because of the fundamental disruption of limited contact, you know, he, he missed out on inputting in kind of four of my formative years. So I guess in that sense, yes, we just fundamentally existed in a position where we'd lost time with each other, which again had its own associated impact. Um, and I think the biggest impact was the fact that because everything was so acrimonious, I never really felt that I could talk about my mum in my father's home either, even though they'd never, again, never specifically said, don't talk about your mother. There just was this idea that everyone wanted to move on and pretend like none of it had ever happened. Now, I understand why that was the case, because it was very traumatic for everybody involved. My dad wanted to move on. My stepmom wanted to move on. I get that. But my mother was still there. She was still alive and she was really ill and I wanted to kind of, Look after her, but also seeing her get progressively more ill was really traumatizing. And I never really had anybody to speak to about that. Um, and never felt that I could raise it in the home. So actually, that was probably the biggest impact. Um, and the biggest dent in my father and I's relationship because, you know, I, I felt that I couldn't talk about my mum my at all. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes it can be less, uh, less obvious and less dramatic, and I have read some truly horrifying testimony. Um, But regardless, it does have a huge impact, and it takes kind of decades to to really repair.
0: Bob's ex-wife broke the court order and stopped Bob from seeing his daughter. Because she claimed his daughter doesn't want to see him, there's been no consequences.
3: Well, the the solution, the only solution I've ever been able to... um... To, to, to that's ever been successful is court action. It's only ever been when there's a very, very real threat that they knew would, would, would be acted on or thought could be acted on. The minute that goes, everything slips. So I, I, there's very little I, I can do now. And I made a, It's a difference. Some, somebody said to me, you know, basically, have you given up? And I said, no, I've, I've never given up and never would give up but there's nothing else I can do. That's the difference now. There's no one else who will help. There's no one else who who can support. And there've been some very good people who've made very good arguments on my behalf in in courtrooms, but it's just not not worked. Um, So I I don't know what else I can do. And now I have to remind myself that, that it's not my fault. I, I was trying to do the best that I could for her, and still would given half a chance. But the guilt you feel is overwhelming. The guilt I feel about her her grandparents who now have had to accept that they will probably never ever see their granddaughter again. And it's devastating to them. And it, it, it's huge amounts of guilt f- for me as well in that. So it's, 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 it's not a pleasant thing. It comes back to you at odd moments. Um, you know, I've thrown myself into, into work and other things to try and compensate for that, to try and fill the time to not have thinking time, to not be able to dwell on it. You know, and I, I still have a room ready at home. It's been redecorated, it's ready for someone of her age and you just hope that one day she might come home.
0: The alienating behaviour has made having a
3: relationship with his daughter incredibly difficult. There is something also which is really horrible in a situation like this. Whereas, and it's my view that it was received behaviors on her part, but my daughter was increasingly rude, standoffish, dismissive with me. She'd learned that from uh, my ex-wife and her side of the family over a number of years. And there's a, a small bit of not seeing her that's actually easier because she was being so rejecting and unpleasant to me that, that there's a small element which is thank God that's over that and that's awful that's a horrible horrible thing to have to think uh, but it had got that bad uh, and, and at the same time I'd do anything I could to have a relationship with her absolutely anything I I'd, I'd I I, would give everything I have um, to be able to take her to her grandparents one time before they die so they can see her again. I'd do anything for that. But I can't. I can't do it.
0: Ben Hines' research highlights the devastation caused to alienated parents.
2: You know, from... My experience of reading the testimony of parents who are describing how they feel and their experiences, I mean, it, it is truly devastating um, and very difficult to read. Not only as someone who's experienced it, but, you know, uh, my colleagues who I work with on this that maybe don't have direct experience still found it incredibly tough to digest. Um, and, you know, what we're talking about is is wide ranging and severe mental health impact. Um which can also translate often into physical health impact as well you we have a lot of parents reporting that their physical health is affected and we we obviously know about the um you know the, the connections between the mind and the body in that in that sense um but one of the most interesting things about examining the impact is around this idea of loss and grief Um, because we tend to have quite a straightforward or narrow conceptualization of of grief and we we tend to think about it in relation to to people who are you know physically not here anymore you know people have passed away but actually there are many many different forms of of grief and we can grieve over lots of different uh, you know things and we can grieve over lost relationships and actually That's what a lot of the parents report if they are denied contact, um, you know, illegitimately um, or or in their opinion, without justification from their children. They experience this overwhelming and and all consuming feeling of grief and loss um, for the relationship that they had and also for the relationship that they are missing out on actively. You know, every day is a, a reminder of that grief. So there's this, uh, but but interestingly, they report that it's very ambiguous as well, because we don't tend to talk about grief other than in relation to, you know, our our kind of clear loss in terms of if someone's passed away. Um, They describe it as kind of this ambiguous feeling. They know that the person's still alive, but they don't see them and they don't have that relationship with them.
0: And of course, let's not forget the long-term damage done to children caught up in this situation
2: yeah, it felt very much that I couldn't rely on other people. Um, it felt hard to, to connect and, and truly kind of attach to others. And, um, you know, when when my mum passed away from, from MS, um, no one was there at the hospital with me for that process, because I think everyone was just too afraid of what it might look like or seeing each other and all that it was just all too overwhelming for everyone apart from me because I thought well I have to be here because you know it's my mum and I, I want to look after her um you know and and that being there when when my mother passed away and being there on my own um you know really gave me this impression that I was on my own in things you know and I and I um I couldn't rely on anyone and therefore I didn't need anybody and that has had a big impact on you know my romantic relationship with with my wife who I've been with since I was 16 but you know we've had exceptionally rocky periods because of of that. Um, My relationship with my children has, has been affected and again it's something that I have to kind of continually work on and improve but you know, when each of them were born, I have a, I have a five-year-old son and a, and a 14-month-old um, daughter, it triggered its very separate and very unique kind of crisis. Um, and it's meant to be very joyous, you know, when you have your children. And, and it was, but also it was very triggering because I, you know, was trying to map it onto my experiences of, of parenthood um, and I've talked about this with, with my dad before, and I've always prefaced it with saying, I hope, you know, this doesn't um, upset you, because I do know, especially now, now that I've you know spoken to him and gone through a lot of these processes with him, how much he loves me. And But, but that was destabilised for many years, you know, from, from forces beyond his control. And I think I had this process where I helped my son. And I had that feeling that parents have where they look at their children and they go, gosh, I would, I would really, I would die for this, this other human. You know, someone said, walk in front of a train. Now I would do it in a heartbeat to save him. Um, And it triggered this kind of crisis of thinking, well, I, I, do I feel like that? Do I feel like I have people in my life who feel that way about me? Um, And the reason I had those thoughts is because that had been destabilized previously. So You know, it it can have this rolling effect that even when you think you're okay, as well, that's the real kicker. Is even when you think you're okay, something might come along um, and uh, and knock you again. You know, I've had quite a few um, Christmases, for example, where I've I've just lost it on Christmas Day because you know my son's acting up, and when I go through therapeutic, uh, you know, intervention and therapy and think, okay, why was I like that? It turns out, you know, I'm potentially jealous because he all he has to worry about on christmas day is you know whether he's had enough time with a particular toy whereas my christmases were always involved in a negotiation about where i was going to go and this and that and you know it came from a position of belief not jealousy you know i've been jealous of my own 3 year old child that they live in a world that's so secure that my wife and i have worked very hard to create that he can you know pop off and and have a little tantrum and and uh You know, I've had to work through my reaction to that, um, you know, several times. So I think it's it's that's just my way of drawing on my own experiences, I guess, to to stress the long lasting impact of this and just how serious an issue it is.
0: It seems from the people I've spoken to who've experienced alienation that there is something very wrong with the way the system is currently set up. Of course, we need to protect children from other forms of abuse too. And maybe more diligence needs to be done by the family court to understand better the circumstances of a family before judgments are made. Bob went to court around 40 times and spent in excess of £260,000 in his battle to have a relationship with his daughter. Now he lives in hope that one day she will contact him and they will have an opportunity to rebuild the relationship.
3: And, and, and this is such an emotive issue. Uh, because it 's about families it 's about children um, it, it's it, it, and of course it 's about parents and the devastating effect on parents and grandparents does need to be considered uh, and for me i 'm not someone who would say it, it, it is purely a child protection because it affects the whole dynamic of the family, but it is predominantly a child protection issue and and if the refocusing was on that, then some of the the rather difficult and toxic debates that are going on about this might be might be quiet and down
0: maybe if parental alienation was seen more as a child protection issue and less of a battleground between parents then it would be taken more seriously ben hein
2: what i will say is that all of the work that i have done with fathers and the work that is ongoing with fathers is unanimously damning in the words of the men themselves of those systems And they feel in their words, not mine, that the system is, quote unquote, stacked against them from the get go. That was certainly the experience of my father, albeit this was nearly 20 years ago in the 1990s. But still, he described it in the same way that just being a father was an immediate disadvantage. Um, How uh, That is complicated by the current debates that we are having in the area around how alienation and abuse are raised in family court um, proceedings. And there are a lot of researchers kind of arguing around this at the moment um, because there is one camp that is arguing that predominantly uh, fathers raise, in their opinion, erroneous parental alienation claims in response to predominantly mothers, predominantly true uh, accusations of abuse. Now, again, the issue with that is that we cannot determine who is being truthful and who is not without knowing more about those cases and knowing more about what the fact find returned um, and I believe that there is also ideology at play because we do seem to get the sense that whenever we talk about mothers raising abuse, that there is talk of that without any critical insight. They're just accepted as true. Um, whereas men have reported, again, in my research and others, that they are subject to false allegations of abuse. So um, I do believe those exist. And that when men raise alienation claims, that those are unilaterally false, and that's the assumption that's made by some researchers, which again we can't possibly know. So it's, incre- it's, it's a, actually a really complicated question. Although some wouldn't frame it that way, they would say, "Well, actually, there's an easy answer. It's a, you know legitimate abuse raised by women um, and false claims by men." But I don't. I think it's much more complicated than that, and it's further complicated by this idea we were talking about earlier that alienation and abuse are potentially one and the same. So instead of domestic violence versus parental alienation in a call, what we might actually have is domestic violence versus domestic violence, which would um, reframe the debate significantly. Um, When you you really start talking about it, it really makes me wonder why, um, you know, I'm in it. But then I have the immediate answer that I'm in it because uh, of my own, you know, well, one of the reasons I'm in mean, it is my own experiences and my, my father's experiences of wanting to understand more so that we can do it better. Because um, what is unanimous is that, you know, the effects of alienation on any parent and the associated children is, the, I mean, the evidence is, is now becoming undeniable in terms of its harm and its impact. Um, so whilst we, not, whilst we might not necessarily have the, uh, the answers on how to do things better, um, there must be something that is at least a bit better than what we're doing at the moment. Because um, for me, it just seems to be that everybody emerges from family court processes as deeply traumatised. Um, and, you know, again, just to stress, um, this, this is the same for, for women who are raising legitimate experiences of abuse. You know, there is a body of literature growing that, you know, suggests that their experiences are overlooked, are minimised. Um, I, I don't believe to the extent that, that, that people are, are talking about, and um, there's talk that whenever an alienation claim is raised, that the case immediately swings in favour of that claim, which I, I, I do not believe um, is the case. Um, but um, I, I think at the moment it's one of those areas where where everybody is losing out, um, and uh, you know we can offer thoughts on how we uh, how we improve that. But um, my my message at the moment is that something's at least got to get a little bit better.
0: This has been the Problem With Men podcast. I hope you've learned a little something from this episode. You can find links to further reading and details of this episode's contributors on our website at theproblemwithmen.co.uk. We're always interested in other issues we should be covering on this podcast. You can contact us via the website or our social media profiles. Until next time, goodbye.
1: Men Podcast is an octopus industries production, produced and presented by Chris Dodd and produced by Sandra Kapasingbuzi.